Thank you very much for this opportunity to come and be with you this morning. And uh, it's been something that both my husband and I have been looking forward to for some time because we got to know Trina and Steve in Jordan while we were uh, ministering together and uh, have appreciated the friendship that God has forged between us. And we've heard a lot about this church. So my husband and I said, let's go and find out if this is for real. <laughs> but it's always nice, you know, when a pastor speaks highly of his congregation when he's away from them. It tells you, you know, the kind of uh, bond that uh, you have with your pastor and vice versa. You know, when we were singing that song about God opening the eyes of the blind and lifting us from the ash heap, I thought to myself, am I ever glad I can speak today for God who opened my eyes that were blind and lifted my prayer life from what was like an ash heap. And I'm here really to tell you a sto my story, but sometimes a story can be dangerous because, you know, when you listen to somebody's story, you almost feel like, well, maybe my story should be like theirs. But I was very helped by Noelle Piper, who uh, wrote a book called Faithful Women and Their Extraordinary God, where she profiled four missionary women. I mean, they, these were like, you know, Sarah Edwards and really giants. And a book like that can make you feel depressed after you read it, <laughs> because you think, I can never be like that. And what I appreciated her saying was that really the point of, of you know, entering into these stories is not so much so that your story can look like theirs, but that somewhere at some point God might intersect your story with theirs. And, uh, you know, she was talking about uh, Sarah Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' wife, who was a pastor's wife, and she said her role as a pastor's wife helped me in my role as a pastor's wife. So while they were very different, you know, generations and different, uh, you know, uh, even uh, social and cultural uh, milieu, she was able to glean something from her life. And so that's really my prayer. And I have to say that you, as you listen to my story, you will know that at some point in this rather pedantic rut of a prayer life, I, God gave me an aha moment. It was like I had an epiphany. And, and, and like this penny dropped in the slot in my mid-30s, and I'm 65 years. So I've been on a journey for 30 years. I hope you know that, that I, what I'm sharing with you is not something I expect for you to feel like today. You know, uh, God begins a good work, he continues that work. But I hope that for some of you who may be in the place where I was, that the penny will drop in the slot for you, that you will have that aha moment, and a light will go on, on this very, um, you know, much talked about subject, a mystery called prayer. But let me tell you a little bit about myself. As was mentioned, I grew up in India. I grew up in a church-growing family. We went to church every Sunday, um, but it was not my favorite day of the week. It was a day that my brothers and I uh, and my sister tried very much to avoid because all the good English movies used to come into town on Sunday morning. <laughs> and uh, frankly, all of us preferred to see Elvis Presley than Father John. <laughs> and, uh, and my dad was a very strict disciplinarian, you know. He was, he was influenced by the British, as you know, Britain ruled India. And so everything had to be proper for him. So when we were ready to go to church, he would line us five kids up and inspect us from head to foot. And if something was out of place, back to the house. You can't go to church. And we'd say, oh. No, and meanwhile inside we'd be saying thank you, thank you. <laughs> okay, so well, that was, you know, it's funny. The sad part of it was I grew up thinking you had to be perfect to go to church. That God did not, uh, you know, want a hair out of place or a wrinkle on your dress or a shoe not polished. But what happened when I was 16 was my parents transferred my sister and I into a private girls' school in Delhi which was taught by missionaries years ago. And one of the things that used to happen once a week in that school was these two ladies from Youth of Christ would come and conduct Bible studies. And students from all Christian backgrounds, whether Catholic, Protestant, were strongly urged to go. Well, I was not in, interested in spiritual things at all, but since you know I was from a Christian background, it was expected that I would go, and so I went. 
uh, hardly paid any attention to what was being said. On this particular day, though, we had a guest, special guest, and he was an American by the name of Sam Walgamuth. He was the president of Youth for Christ International, and he was visiting India, and he came to speak to us girls. We were about 25 or so. And, you know, he was talking, and uh, I wasn't paying any attention. I was thinking, when are we going to get out of here, you know? And then, at the end of his talk, he said something that piqued my curiosity. He said, now, if anybody would like to receive Christ, I'd never heard that phrase before, we're going to bow our heads, close our eyes, and if you would like to receive Christ, put your hand up. So, being a bit of a rebel, I bowed my head, but I did not close my eyes. Because I was interested to see who was going to put this, their hand up and make the morning interesting, you know, for me. But to my, you know, great disappointment, nobody put their hand up. Well, that's when I discovered I have the gift of people-pleasing. I'm a people-pleaser, so, and my mother had always said, be polite to people. So I thought, this man will go away thinking Indian girls are very rude. <laughs> so who, guess who took it upon herself to, you know, uh, uh, sort of promote the cause of Indian women? <laughs> Yours truly, I put my hand up. And uh, don't ask me what I was putting my hand up to. I just felt good inside that he would go away thinking that Indians are very nice people. Okay? Well, nothing happened, nothing changed. So then a few months later, we had by now moved from the church. We were going to another church. And this time there was an Australian evangelist who was conducting week-long meetings uh, that were in a tent, actually. But I was sitting with the back with my family, and uh, this man, Ian North, was speaking, and I was just riveted. I was held in such a grip of just the power and the anointing with which this man spoke. And at the end, he said, if any of you would like to follow Jesus, come to the front. And I mean, it was a long way to the front. But I almost felt I heard this senseless voice saying, follow me. I got out of my seat. I didn't care if anybody else did, but I had this strong urge to follow Jesus. And I got up from my seat and went to the front. And that began a journey that has brought me to where I am today. But one of the things I was told when I first made this uh, you know, indication I wanted to follow Jesus was, now what you have to do is read your Bible, pray every day, and you grow, grow, grow. You know that song. So being very anxious to, you know, grow in this new uh, chapter in my life, I would open the Bible, not every day, but, you know, two or three times a week, I would open it randomly wherever I wanted to, uh, read something, and, and then close it, and then I would pray. And basically the prayer was, bless me, bless my mom, take care of my family. It was all gimme, gimme, gimme prayers, and uh, very self-serving. And when I look back now, it reminds me of a scene that took place in our home every day. We had a servant. He would come, and he would stand at the door, and he would say to my mom, what do you want me to do for you today? And my mom would give him a list of things to do and send him on his way. Some things he got done, some things he didn't. So the next day when he came, if he didn't get certain things done, he got a bit of a lecture. And uh, then he was given another list. And I thought, you know, in many ways, I almost treated God like a glorified servant. <coughs> Not only that, I almost made him appear like he didn't know what to do, but needed me to give him his marching orders for the day. And that was pretty, you know, crass. And, but I didn't know any better. Nobody told me any better. So <coughs> I continued this regimen for a number of years, and the song was true. I read my Bible, I prayed every day like I said I did, like I showed you I did, and I grew. I grew bored. That's what happened. <laughs> and, you know, I kept thinking in the back of my mind, there's got to be more to this. Anyway, I got married to my husband, Sundar, and we have, have two children. But somewhere in my late 20s and early 30s, I noticed a change in my husband's prayer, the way he prayed. And one of the things I noticed was there was a lot of scripture that he used in his prayer. His prayer language comprised of a lot of scripture. And with it came a lot of power. Thank you. 
And so I, I began to long for that, but I didn't know how to go about it. I memorized scripture, but that was really not, I think, what I needed. Anyway, we went on our first sabbatical in 1995 to Vancouver, <coughs> because my husband wanted to be mentored by Eugene Peterson, who had, uh, whose books my husband had written, had read so many times. In fact, when we met him, I wanted to say to him, come meet the man who, has, who can tell you everything you ever wrote. <laughs> uh, because my husband had read enough for the two of us. I hadn't read any of Peterson's books. Um, but when we got there, um, what happened was he and my husband had already decided he was going to take a course on prayer. I was just going to enjoy the sabbatical, you know. And so we went to the college, and we were looking at the board with all the various courses being offered. And my husband said, hey, honey, there's a course being offered on spirituality and ministry, particularly for people who are in ministry. And it was being offered on three consecutive weekends in the month of April. And so on the spur of the moment, we decided to take that course. And that was a defining decision in my life. Because I got to meet Eugene Peterson, and when I saw this man, I thought, there's something about him that makes me want to be like him. He, he was 64 at the time, and I remember a song many years ago that was called, When I'm 64. <laughs> it probably dates me. But I thought, when I'm 64, I would like to be like that man. And so I started reading his books. And one of the books that transformed my prayer life was a book called Answering God, Praying the Psalms. It was a book on prayer. And the title itself will tell you that that was one of the, the missing links in my whole understanding of prayer. So what I want to do for the next little while is to highlight two very significant changes that took place in my understanding of prayer that has made it now one of the loves of my life and most of all it is something that I love to do for my children and my grandchildren. My mom died when I was 27. She was a praying mom. I'm here today because of her prayers. When I was five days old I was struck with polio and uh, was given up to die. The doctors told my mother I wouldn't live and my mom uh, pleaded with God to spare my life. And I believe God heard her prayers and my life was given back to me. And ever since my mom told me that, I have felt my life has been given to me for a purpose. I also remember when my brother was nine years old, he was struck with double pneumonia and typhoid and he was very ill. In fact, my mother had been in the hospital for weeks and this particular evening, the doctors told my mom, your son will not make it to the morning. And my mom, being a God-fearing fighter, prayer warrior, at night my brother tells me he felt this person coming to take him and he shouted, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. And my mother jumped out from her chair. She must have been, you know, deep sleep because she'd been so tired of staying up with my brother. But she jumped out of her chairs, threw herself over my brother and said, don't take my son, don't take my son. And in that moment, my brother's life was turned around. So much so when the doctor came in the morning, he was surprised to see my brother still alive, but also very much on the road to recovery. That picture of my mom thrown over my brother has given me a vision for my life. When it comes to prayer, I want to be there as that person throwing herself over my son, my daughter, and my six grandchildren, and, and my son-in-law and daughter-in-law. That has become one of the main reasons for my living. It's something that I ask God to give me as a gift, that I might be able to be an intercessor for my children. But like I said, it's been a long road in the making. So one of the most important things I discovered when, as I look back now, if you were to ask me, what do you think the purpose of prayer is? It is not primarily to ask God to do things. Yes, there is a lot of asking. But I've come to realize that prayer has been given to us as an incredible privilege by means by how we get to know God. And I, when I finish my prayer time, I hope when I get up from my chair that I have come away knowing God a little better than when I first went there. And you know, this is so important because otherwise we will be praying to a God that we hope to discover. We are very 
privileged in the Christian faith to have a God who speaks and a God who loves to speak, a God who loves to make himself known to his people. And you know, he says, if anyone boasts, let him boast in this, that he knows and understands and fears me. He wants to be known. And so it is through prayer that we get to know him, get to know who he is, his character, his nature, what he likes, what he does not like, how he thinks, how he acts, and when we get to know him, then we can take a hold of this God with understanding. So our prayer has, we pray with understanding. You know, my mother-in-law is a Hindu, and she goes through her prayers, you know, regularly. And sometimes when I ask her, what are these prayers? She says, oh, they're just like asking God for forgiveness. And I said, how do you know he forgives you? Well, he's God, you know, God forgives. Well, we can't just arbitrarily impute to God certain things. We need to know, does he forgive? What are the terms of his forgiveness? And as Peterson puts it, you must have a doctrine of God if you're going to pray the way you were intended to pray. You need to understand who it is you're taking a hold of and who it is this God that you are calling upon to be for you and do for you what he has shown himself in the scriptures to do and be for his people. I'll tell you, this is so important because you know why? It does two things for you. Not only does it give you a sense of wisdom and understanding when you're praying, but it's the source of your confidence and boldness. My husband has a message called pray big, pray bold. And the only way you can pray big and pray bold is if you know the God to whom you are praying and you can with confidence take a hold of his words Rather than you putting words in his mouth, he puts words in your mouth and says, this is who I am, and this is who you can take a hold of. And this was driven home to me in a very powerful uh, way one afternoon. My friend Ruth and I, she used to come every other Wednesday, and we would pray for our missionaries in um, Indonesia. And this particular day, uh, just before she came, my mother and father lived with us for many, many years. My mother and I were in the kitchen, and she said something that irritated me. <laughs> now that doesn't happen, right? <laughs> I'm now a mother-in-law, and I'm sure my son-in-law daughter will say, not, not with my mother-in-law. <laughs> um, but it, it, it bugged me, to use a very sophisticated expression. <laughs> so then I came into the living room, and my friend Ruth was there, and we began to pray. Well, I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't enter into the prayer. Ruth was praying away, and my mind was still reading from what had happened in the kitchen. Suddenly, I felt the Holy Spirit remind me that earlier that morning, my mother-in-law had sort of sat in that very place and prayed to her gods, you know, with her little prayer book. And I thought, what spirits were invoked when she prayed that is influencing me now? So I became like this fierce warrior, and I began to take everything I knew from Ephesians 1 about Jesus Christ being seated above every principality and power and ruler and authority and having dominion over every other rule on earth and in heaven. And I invoked his presence, I declared his supremacy, his preeminence over any spirit that had been uh, invoked in that place earlier that day. And I established Christ as Lord in that place and in my life. And you know, before I knew it, I was on a roll. And I was praying, you know, with that same passion for my missionaries who were also dealing with, you know, uh, spirits of darkness. Anyway, the prayer time finished, I went into the kitchen and my mother was there cutting vegetables. She had obviously, you know, heard. I don't know if she heard, but this is what she said to me. She said, that was a very powerful prayer. She said, I didn't hear the words, but I felt the power. And you know what the power was? The power was of the living God. And it was bringing to bear in that situation who God said he was, who he had exalted Jesus to be. And it was my privilege to pray with boldness and confidence to declare what God had said about his son. And so if you want to pray big and pray bold, ladies, get to know this God. I cannot stress that enough. And you will find your prayer life 
will be so different from this, you know, uh, bless me, be with me in a special way, that kind of thing. This is the language of prayer comes from the revelation of God. Which brings me to the second aha moment that I had, which was Peterson talks about prayer being our response to what God first reveals. In other words, he says, when you come to pray, before you open your mouth, open your ears. Because you need to take your cue from God. He sets the agenda. He decides what the conversation is going to be today, not you. And I was so used to coming and just simply, you know, engaging in what Peterson calls presumptuous prayer. He said presumptuous prayer speaks to God without first listening to him. It obsessively, anxiously, or pretentiously multiplies human words to God, but with at best a distracted, indifferent, or fitful interest in God's word to us. But God first speaks to us before we speak to him. If we pray without listening, we pray out of context. In other words, there is a disconnect. And I know there are women today who don't pray because they say, he, don't, he doesn't hear me. Or, you know, I, I've lost my interest in praying because it's the same old, same old. And, you know, there was an incident that happened that, to me, points out the truth of this disconnect. We live in, we used to live in Mississauga, which is at the western end of Toronto. And one morning, early morning, there was a huge explosion. I actually saw this fireball in the sky. And I woke up and I said to my husband, what's that? He said, what's what? I said, do you see the fireball? And he said, I don't see anything. All is well, go back to sleep. And I, take, I was taken by his word, so I went back to sleep. Well, the next day was Sunday, my sister and I used to sing in, as a duet, and we were singing in the east end of the city. So I had no idea what was going on in Mississauga. But around five in the evening, I, we were at my brother's house, I suddenly remembered tomorrow's Remembrance Day. So I said to my husband, I wonder if the kids have school. So I thought, let me find out from Ray, our neighbor. He, his wife was a teacher, and he knew all these important facts. So I phoned Ray, and I said, Ray, do the kids, because his kids and our kids went to the same school, I said, Ray, do the kids have school tomorrow? I'll never forget his answer, he said. Depends on which way the wind is blowing. I said, really? I thought, what on earth? But you know, I think the Lord rescued me, because suddenly that fireball came into my mind. I thought, I bet you he's talking about that fireball. I said, oh. Really? He said, yes. And apparently what had happened, this train had derailed. And there was a huge explosion, and this toxic gas had been released, which was you know, contaminating Mississauga. And depending on which way the wind was blowing, literally, our schools would be closed. We would have to be evacuated. So when he said, oh, yeah, right now, you know, it's, uh, we're, it's not sure. We are not sure. The wind is moving in this direction and all of that. As it turned out, we did end up being evacuated that night. But I got the answer, so I went back to my husband, who is an engineer, very logical, you know, everything needs to be, you know. So he said to me, so do the kids have school tomorrow? I said, it depends on which way the wind is blowing. <laughs> you can imagine, if I was thinking, what on earth, my husband, you know, I was, he thought, she's really lost. Anyway, but you know, the, what I'm, why I'm telling that story is, I came to Ray thinking Remembrance Day. He, on the other hand, was totally preoccupied with this toxic gas and watching the weather report. No wonder his answer did not make sense to me. We did not connect. And so often, that's how it is in prayer. We come with certain things on our mind. We don't bother to find out what's on your mind, God. What are you thinking about? And so we come and just do our spiel and go away and we feel like we have not met God, we have not connected with Him. And so now what I do is, to give you some practical steps, when I come, first of all I want to encourage you because some of you have young children, I want you to say moms, relax, don't feel you have to do this every day. I'm much more interested in quality, if you're getting to know somebody you need time, a block of time, not little spurts here, little spurts there. I would say to you, just choose even once or twice a week when you can set apart an hour. And if you can even ask your husband or a girlfriend, and you can do this even as a community, 
where you can, I did this for a young mom in our church where I would say to her, I will look after your children. You go and get to know God. And she would do that. I would stay with her children. And you know, some of us who are in that stage of life where we can do this as a gift to our younger, uh, you know, spiritual daughters, it would be a wonderful gift to be able to say, I'll look after your kids. I did that for my daughter. I did that for my daughter-in-law. Once a week, I would say, this is not for you to go shopping, get more tired and exhausted. This is to do two things. Take care of your rest, your body, and your soul. So I would come to, my daughter would come to our house with her little ones. And then I would take her little ones and go in the van and take them all over the place and have a merry old time. She would stay in our home, spend time alone with God, then get some sleep, and then set the alarm for three so she could pick up Rebecca, her oldest at school, and then she would come back to her house when I would be there with the other two, and then I would come back home. But if you can even say to your spouse or to a girlfriend, you know, and make this such a priority. Ladies, I was thinking of the fact that Christina Onassis left a billion dollar fortune for her daughter. We can give an inheritance and a legacy to our children and to our sisters in the faith that no money can buy by giving them the gift of time alone with God so they can get to know him and pray for their children. And so set aside, you know, ask some, take even an hour, okay? Find a place. I like to sit in our living room because you can see I like bright things. Um, and so the window streams and I love sitting in our living room. And then what I do is, because I'm coming with so many things on my mind, I usually put some music on. Just like today, you know, singing those songs just reminded me, it brought me back to who really is, it is that I'm wanting to speak about, whose story really it is I'm telling. And so get your mind back into the place where you can begin to enter his presence. You can do that with music, you can do that with little daily bread readings or devotionals, uh, but something that will pique your interest and grab your attention and remind you in whose presence you are coming. There are a couple of hymns that I use, actually they're both in our hymnal, one is called, Lord, Speak to Me. The other one is called, Lord, I Have Shut the Door. And one line in that verse particularly says, uh, Lord, I have shut the door, here do I bow. Rebuke what is vain, counsel my soul, thy holy will reveal, my will control. And then I use the line of that hymn, Have Thine Own Way, Hold Over My Being Absolute Sway, Power, All Power, Surely Is Thine, Touch Me, and heal me, Savior Divine. Because I know I'm broken on the inside, and I'm not just talking about physical healing. There are parts of me that need his healing. And so I come to him and acknowledge the fact that I need him to heal me. I am here to listen to him. I'm here for him to rebuke me, to convict me of any sin that I have forgotten about, and then to clear the slate. And then I basically say something like this. I say, Lord, this is holy ground, because where you are is holy ground, just like with Moses. And I thank you for drawing me to you. You have said that I would not be here if you had not drawn me, because you have said no one can come to you except the Holy Spirit draw him. I have come to listen to what you have to say to me. May my prayer rise as incense before you. And you set the agenda. I'm here to listen. You know all about my life. You know who's on my heart. You know the circumstances that I'm dealing with. You know the concerns I have. But I want to put all of those in your court right now. And I want you to initiate this time. I want to hear what you have to say. What is your agenda for our time together? So that I will rise from here knowing I have heard from you, I have been with you, I have experienced your presence, and that what I have prayed is pleasing to you because it has come from my response to what you have revealed to me. And like I said, I pray for my grandchildren, so what I do is if I'm praying for one of my children, say for grandchildren, say Rebecca, she's the oldest, she's going to be 15 this year. And I say, Lord, you know, I'm here as part of a long line of mothers and grandmothers who have brought their 
grandchildren and children to you, to ask you to bless them. I always picture mothers coming and asking Jesus to put their hand on their child and bless them. So I say, Lord, I want you to bless Rebecca. But I want you to bless her with the blessing that you have in mind for her. You know, we use that blessing so many times. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make the light of his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face towards you and grant you peace, taken from numbers. But I realized that God said to Moses, tell Aaron, this is how I want you to bless. Aaron was the one who pronounced the blessing, but it was not his words. They were the words God put in his mouth to declare to the Israelites. And so I said, Lord, I don't want to bless Rebecca, ask you to bless her with my words. I want you to bless her with what is on your heart for her. You know her, you know the plans you have for her. Before she was formed in her mother's womb, you set her apart. She has a destiny. In keeping with that destiny, what is it you desire to do in her and for her today at the age of 15 that will play itself out in her life so that she can grow into that uh, godly uh, woman and who will also be that polished arrow that will, um, you know, the psalm stops about him, Psalm 127. So I just preface my conversation with that. And then what I do is I turn to my scripture passage for that day. And in that context, may I say to you and encourage you, find a regular reading pattern. Before, like I said to you, I would just pull my favorite verses out and just say, repeat them, recycle them. You know, that after a while, you know what? It becomes rote. Whereas what makes my prayer time so exciting now is I don't know where I'm going to go because I have not set the agenda. It's God. So I follow the one-year Bible. It has an Old Testament passage, a New Testament passage, a psalm, and a proverb. Sometimes, so I begin reading. And because I want to hear him, I'm here to listen I read aloud and I listen, I listen to the story being told because a lot of scripture is narrative. But if you're reading, say, the Psalms, there are word pictures that are being, you know, revealed. And ask God to just give you the kind of imagination that is holy imagination, not a wild imagination. Because sometimes they imagine, you can imagine something that isn't there. I was telling somebody that we went to see this movie many years ago called Passage to India, and I still haven't figured that movie out. <laughs> but another friend of a couple, you know, they're very down-to-earth people, Helen and Ernie, they went to see it, and they told us they were coming out of the movie, trying to figure out what that movie was about, and another couple in front of them were walking, and the wife said to the husband, now that movie was about human sexuality, Helen said to me, really? <laughs> you know, so no, that's not the imagination I'm talking about, where it's so far out, you know, you have to think, really? I didn't get that. I'm talking about images that, you know, are inspired because they are in scripture. Like one of them, one of my favorite uh, psalms is Psalm 18, and I use that a lot when I pray for people. And in that psalm, there's one particular passage where I just love the imagery, you know. Um, that's the thing with the one-year Bible. Sometimes I have to look at the day, <laughs> not the chapter, when I read it. Anyway, it's Psalm, psalm 18, and he's uh, describing something that God did. And he says, um, the yeah, in verse 4, he says, the cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. I was struck by the word coiled, something being wrapped around someone's neck to the point of almost choking them. And I thought, if somebody's being choked, what kind of sound can they even produce? And yet, he says, my voice came into your temple, it came into your ears. And whenever I read that, I'm so thankful that no matter how choked or overwhelmed I feel 
by my circumstances or somebody else is feeling that way, I'm so glad that even that squeaky sound that may come out, that is gasping for air, comes into his ears as a cry and as a prayer. And then the rest of the psalm tells you how the earth trembled and God responded. So these are images that you ask God to sanctify imagination that you will be gripped by these images. And then the other one, and often I have used this to pray for people who are just feeling absolutely strangled by their life's circumstances and can hardly cry out. But I always thank God that their cry doesn't come just, you know, you can be in a room where you hear a lot of voices, but there's one voice that can enter your ear and that you've heard. And that's what he says, my voice came into your ears. God heard that whimpering. And then the other one is, I love this, he says um, that I was, he rescued me, he took hold of me, he drew me out of deep waters, he rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. I was struck by the fact that he drew this person out of deep waters. And the picture came to my mind of being at a beach and somebody is drowning in that deep water. And it's like the lifeguard goes and pulls him out of there, brings him onto the shore, and he says, he brought me to a spacious place. And I just picture people crowding around this person who was drowning and the lifeguard saying, get away. He needs breathing room. He needs space. Give him the opportunity to get air. And I've used this many times for people. I remember a pastor's wife once came and financially they felt they were drowning. It was one bill after another. And I said to the Lord, I said, they need breathing room about. What you did for the psalmist, you need to do for this pastor and his wife financially. Give them breathing room. Push back all of these financial you know, burdens and bringing them into a place where they can recover, where they can rest, they can get some air. And so use the image, images of the psalmist, you know, to take a hold of God. I just, and then when, when you read something like this, it's almost like the Holy Spirit saying, stop there. Here is something God is wanting you to pay attention to. And that's when the prayer your part of the prayer begins. God initiates by revealing something of himself to you, a truth or a, a situation. And he's saying, I want you to talk to me about this. What did you discover about me through what you just read? And you know, sometimes I can go through the whole Old Testament, nothing grabs me. I get to the New Testament part and does it ever get wrong? Like, you know, I mentioned last night, I don't like flying. It's not my favorite thing to do, and lately it's become a bit of a fear. So this year in particular, we have to do a lot of flying, and especially overseas, and I was not looking forward to it. But on this particular day, I was going through my uh, reading, and I came to Matthew, Matthew 10, and Jesus is saying, whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And right there, God said, this is my promise to you. If you are willing to put yourself in a place of discomfort for my sake, because a lot of the travel has to do with speaking engagements for my husband, and he wants me to go with him. And he said, Sham, I guarantee you this year you are going to find your life by getting on that plane and going. Trust me, you will lose your life, not literally, but you will miss out on life if you stay home and play it safe. So that day, that person, I have claimed that promise for him, even as on the day we left to come here, because this is our first trip, uh, you know, uh, for this year. I said, Lord, I am going to Portland, and I'm expecting to find my life there, because I'm putting myself on that plane uh, for your name's sake. I'm willing to lose my life. So. Keep going until you feel that the Holy Spirit is saying, stop there, and then talk and engage with God about that. I want to close by just giving you uh, an example of how does this work itself, so that you know you can see, um, get a little bit of a taste of what I mean. One of the, a uh, few weeks ago, it was, the way I do it is, 
I set two mornings apart, two blocks, because right now I don't have young children or grandchildren. I can take about two, three hours and really go deep. And ladies, I have to tell you the truth. If you want to get to know God, it's going to take time. It's going to take effort. There's no two ways about it. Um, but I'd much rather you take even one block of time than every day do some quick daily bread reading. You know, It's okay, daily, nothing wrong with daily bread, but, but I don't think it really gives you a chance to grow to God. It's nice to have those little you know, devotionals that help you. But if you're going to go to know God, it will require, just like it does in normal relationships, it's going to take time, it's going to take effort. So what I do is the first Tuesday of the month, uh, in the morning, uh, from about 9 to 12, I pray for my husband and myself. And then on the Friday of that week, I pray for my first grandchild, who's Rebecca, I mentioned to you. The second Tuesday of the month, I pray for Sheila and Duncan. Sheila is a daughter and my son-in-law. And then on the Friday of that week, I pray for Matthew, our second friend. And then the third Tuesday is our son and daughter-in-law, Vijay and Jen, and then our third grandchild. Then on the fourth is Noah, our you know, fifth, uh, fourth grandchild, and on the last Friday, uh, the last two, Joel and Gideon. Gideon is about two and a half. So I take that block, and I come, and I just basically say to God what I've said to you, which is God, I'm asking you to bless. Because you've said, I set before you curses and blessings, choose blessing. So I'm asking you to bless Rebecca. And so on this particular day, I happen to be reading in Genesis 31. Uh, because it's the beginning of the year, so I'm still in Genesis. And I began to read, and I didn't get very far because I just was stopped in my track when I read this. It's Genesis 31, and it begins with verse 17. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camel, camels, and he drove all his livestock ahead of him, along with all the goods he had accumulated in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. When Laban had gone to sh when Laban had gone to share, share his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him he was running away. I stopped right there. You know what struck me? They're beginning this very significant journey with both husband and wife engaging in deception. Jacob was deceiving his father-in-law by not telling him he was leaving. He had been there for a long time, married his two daughters, Leah and uh, Rachel, had all these children, had looked after Laban's sheep. So he'd been there a long time ahead. And, and here he was leaving because he was afraid Laban wouldn't let him go. So he decided to sneak out. And what does Rachel, his wife, do? She steals her father's household gods. I spent a lot of time that day thinking about deception. Particularly when I looked at this family of Abraham's. And this sin of deception, this is where knowing the whole story helps. You know, and this is over years when you read the scriptures, you begin to get to know the stories. Going all the way to the patriarch Abraham who deceived Pharaoh by telling him that Sarah was his wife. When Sarah, or his sister. When he, I mean, she was his half-sister. But he told him he was, she was his sister, and Pharaoh took Sarah into his harem. Things went bad for him, and God told Pharaoh, that's because you have taken this man's wife. And this man did it innocently. And he said, you better return her to her husband, and he will pray for you, and I will you know, heal your household. Abraham deceived. Isaac did the same thing. He told Abimelech that Rebekah was his sister. And then it goes on. Rebekah deceived her husband, Jacob, her uh, husband, by telling him that this was es Esau when it was Jacob. So the, the deception just went all over the place. And I said to the Lord, if I am wanting Rebekah to be free, of any of the sins in my family history, then you have to show me this morning what are the sins that I have inherited from my family. And there are some things that are very evident to me. 
My father had a big issue with anger. And I see that in some of my same siblings. I also see a huge sin of unforgiveness. I remember one time visiting an aunt of mine in Paris. And she and her sister lived in the city of Paris. They were both widows now in their 70s. But some incident happened years ago that this sister, my, my aunt, Marky was her name, and she said, I will never forgive Monique for what she did. And now they're living in the same city, the only two relatives, but they don't speak to each other. And, and I've seen this sin quite a lot in my family. And, there were, and then the lack of discipline. You know, I have struggled a lot with discipline in my life when it comes to eating habits. In my early years, I was very irresponsible. I was telling Steve this morning, another sin I see in my family is cavalierness when it comes to health. My mother was diabetic. She was an amazing woman, a godly woman. Unfortunately, she did not take care of herself. She died at the age of 57. Humanly speaking, I think she could have lived longer had she been more diligent. I'm married to a man who's the other extreme, who reads all the things we shouldn't be eating, you know. And, but I've learned a lot from him. So God just showed me over and over again, and I just confessed to him. I said, Lord, I want you to break those in my life so that my granddaughter, whom I'm asking you to bless today, will not be in any way burdened by those. And uh, there's a part, I don't want have time to go into it, but there's a passage in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34, that which I read over 30 years ago has become my life passage, where God tells the Israelites, I will break the bars of your yoke, and I will rid the land of wild beasts. You will not be victimized or enslaved by the hands of them. I will make a covenant of peace with you. Those are very powerful images, because a yoke is something that's put on you. You can be victimized or enslaved by the hands of somebody else's sin. And I say, God, I don't want to be in any way victimized or burdened or enslaved by some sin that happened years ago. Deliver me from those yokes. And so I spent a lot of time reading, praying for myself, actually. I wasn't even praying for Rebecca. But I felt in praying for myself, I was praying for my granddaughter because I was asking God to first do a work in my life. I kept reading, then he talks about Laban. I have not even watched my time today. I don't know, how much more time do I have? Okay, uh, if you could just let me know as I'm getting closer to the, you know, time. <laughs> then he, go, and you know what happened? Laban discovers uh, that Jacob has left and he comes following him and he says, but God comes to Laban in a dream and he says, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. I stop there again. Because this is about the sin of the tongue. And my granddaughter has a brother, Matthew, who's two years younger than her, and Rebecca can really use that tongue to really crush Matthew. And so I began to pray for her. I said, Lord, you teach her how to use her tongue to be a blessing to Matthew. Because Rebecca is gifted with words, but they don't always come out as gifts. <laughs> and so, it's just, I wasn't even thinking of praying about that. But when I heard God saying to him, don't say anything good or bad, I began to think of the tongue. And, and I noticed this, how Rebecca can really put Matthew down. And then the Lord said to me, but how do you speak about your siblings? And so again, I spent a lot of time thinking about how I do speak about my siblings. While I may not speak to them badly, sometimes I criticize them to my husband. And, uh, and the Lord said, if you don't want Rebecca to use her tongue in a negative way for her siblings, I want you to start paying attention to how you speak about your siblings. So that day again, I made a fresh commitment. I said, God, stop me in my tracks. Remind me of this that if I'm wanting you to bless Rebecca with a tongue that from which no unwholesome tongue, uh, words come out, then please begin that work in me. And let it be like that oil, you know, in Psalm 133, it says when we live in unity, it's like the oil flowing down from heaven's beard, down to his robes. I said, whatever you're doing in me, let it flow down to Rebecca. And so I spent the next little while talking, uh, confessing to God my sin of the tongue, and then praying that as he's helping me to honor my siblings because they are my parents' children. 
I mean, by honoring my siblings, I'm honoring my father and my mother because they are their children. And then I kept going, and then I came to this amazing, amazing truth. So Laban catches up with Jacob, and he tells him, why did you run away? I was going to do this to you, but God warned me in a dream. And then Jacob has this conversation with him. He says, I have been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself, and you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. And he goes on, then he says, if the God, uh, he tells him, he said, I worked for you for 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, flocks and you changed my wages 10 times. <coughs> If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, it's a capital F referring to God. If the fear of Isaac, in other words, the God of Isaac, had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. I was gripped by that phrase, the fear of Isaac. If the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have. And so I began to pray that the fear of Isaac, the God of Isaac, who is my God, will be a barrier around Rebekah, just like it was for Jacob, that nobody would be able to cross that barrier to harm her in any way because they are gripped by the fear of our God who is standing around her, that he will be that wall of fire I was just so thankful, you know, I've been praying that ever since. Because she's 15, going to be 15, and she's entering her teenage years, and you know, you hear all kinds of things. And I said, Lord, if the enemy is coming at her through anybody who will abuse her or defile her in any way, may the fear of Isaac, the fear of you, who is our God, her parents' God, may that absolutely terrify that person that they will run for their life. And so that was a huge, huge gift to God from God to me. And I was able to pray that confidently because he had been there for Jacob. That there were boundaries Laban could not cross because of the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. And I, and I just prayed that with confidence that you will be a barrier, a watch, keep watching. And then I came to the next part, which was uh, Laban, and he make a treaty, and he says, May the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take any wives beside my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. And they made a pile of stones, and they called that uh, mispah, which means watchtower. And so ever since that, I've, I read that, I said, Lord, even when we left to come here, I said, Lord, while we are away from our children and our grandchildren, will you be that watchtower over us so that no one will come anywhere near them to harm us? That idea of God being a watchtower when we are away and separated from our loved ones. So that whole day, it was just a, you know, it was such a powerful and profound time of just seeking God, first of all for myself, and then for my granddaughter. I hope that gives you a little bit of an idea of what I mean when I say let God set the agenda. Because I would never have prayed these things. I would never have thought to pray for myself. I would never have thought of taking a hold of the fear of Isaac for Rebecca had I not read this. I would never have thought of the concept of a watchtower, God being a watchtower between us and our loved ones when we are separated, when we are not with each other. And I, you know, and uh, I just, that day I was just so overwhelmed by God's goodness to me. And so I repeat this over and over again. And I hope that that gives you some idea of the kind of prayer time that has so much substance to it and so much that you can come away saying, I got to know God and I'm so glad that he is who he is and he, this is who he desires to be for me. Uh, I don't know if any of you have any questions. Uh, I want to make sure that I'm not just, uh, if, I need, if you need me to elaborate on anything, I'd be happy to do that. Um, I just want to give you some time for that. Jen, is there any? How are we doing for the time? I think we're doing okay. We need to get a 
Okay. Yes. Do you read different versions of the Bible, or do you try to stick to one? I usually stick to one version. Okay. The question was, do I read different versions? I usually stick to the NIV. Okay. Yeah. And as I, as I said to you, my, my passion is, it's the greatest gift you can give your children, but you can do this for your loved ones too. I mentioned at our table last night, I'll never forget a one-liner by another pastor who said, when you tell somebody you're going to pray for them, are you saying really, you know what, I'll gang up with you on guarding to see if we can get you what you want? <laughs> or are you saying, I'm going to go to God and listen for you? And that's a whole different thing. And I'll just close with this one illustration. Our son was working for Craft Canada for a number of years. And uh, he moved from there to a company called Concord Confections. And he was with that makes double bubble gum. And he was there only three months and he lost his job because they moved the department to the US. And he was devastated. And he couldn't understand God because he had taken one year to pray about this transition. And he said to me, Mom, why did God do this? And I did not have an answer. I said, you know, just enjoy this. They give him a good severance. I said, just enjoy this as a sabbatical and we'll see what God has in mind. He does not play games with his children. So the next week we were in San Francisco and I was just doing what I just said to you, but I happened to be reading in Numbers. And this time I was reading about God moving his people and it was in Numbers 9. And he talks about how uh, you know, they followed, he let his presence be known by this pillar of cloud. And it said when the pillar of cloud moved, they were to wrap up their tents and follow that cloud. And wherever the cloud came to settle, that was where they were to settle. I had read that so many times, but this time God highlighted a detail for me because he said, sometimes the cloud stayed just one night and moved in the morning and it was their cue to move. And can you imagine you've just camped and the next morning the cloud is moving you? But they were told, when you see that cloud moving, you better move. But it said sometimes the cloud stayed a long time. I mean, and, but it never told you why God sometimes kept them in a place for just a night, sometimes a place for a long time. But it was always their indication that when they saw the cloud moving, they ought to move. So I phoned my son from San Francisco. I said, Vijay, don't worry, don't panic. You are in good company. You are in good hands. I said, God has done this with his people from the very beginning. He kept his people in a place sometimes a long time, sometimes a short time. And so don't feel like you misread his, his direction. He kept you in craft for five years. He moved you to uh, Concord Confections. He's kept you there for three months. He's moving. He's on the move. And you just ask him to keep your eyes on that cloud. And he did. And so, you know, as I said, I would never have even gone to that passage. But it gave my son tremendous assurance to know that he was in good hands. That there was no need to be alarmed because God, that's how God did work with his people. He moved them for reasons known only to him, and he kept them for reasons known only to him. Well, thank you very much. I just hope that uh, my story is in some ways giving you some food for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Shamala. Wow, a lot of good stuff there. We're going to spend a little bit of time in your tables or in groups. Um, so if you're not at a table, you can hop on to one. And what I'd love for us to spend time discussing is just how did your story interact with Shanna's story? Was there something that popped out to you, um, a word or a phrase or a scripture she mentioned that just something made your heart beat faster? You might want to share that with your table. Um, another thing might be to share what does your prayer life look like right now? What does your prayer life for your children, if you're a, a mother, look like? Or maybe you want to share, you know what, I've never experienced prayer like this. And maybe talk a little bit about like, wow, I, do you guys experience that? I don't know what that's like. And as always here, you're welcome to pass. So when it gets to you, if you don't want to share anything, 
That is totally great. We are glad that you're here and you don't have to share. So spend a little time um, in table talk time. We will, Jen will be handing out some handouts that um, go through some of an outline of what Shamala was talking about so you can take those home with you. So go ahead and share with your groups.